Last week we were talking about how the, Jesus is greater than the sacrifice of the Old Testament law. We talked about this difference between being forgiven and being transformed, right? That, that they aren't necessarily the same thing that the author of Hebrews says. Both are needed in order to be made right with God. We need to be forgiven from sin and transformed into God's image, and only Jesus' sacrifice can do both. But really, I mean, sometimes, I mean, you've probably heard pastors that will teach and preach in this way. You get kind of caught up on these big these big picture theological discussions almost that the, the author of the scriptures is trying to, to put forward to us, you know, that John or Paul is presenting to say, no, this is something worth it. This is why we need Jesus so much. And you can almost just kind of sit back in awe at the big picture and it doesn't really move you to do anything. And the author of Hebrews knows, like, look, I, more than just trying to make, like, a theological dissertation, right? Like, the author is not just trying to say, okay, Jesus is greater than this and greater than this and greater than this so that you can kind of puff your head up with the knowledge. He says there is a real life change that takes place when we see, when we believe that Jesus is greater than these things. So the last three chapters of Hebrews is kind of the author saying, okay, You've seen the arguments. You've seen how Jesus is greater than everything. Here's what we do. Here's what we're after, right? Here's why I'm actually trying to share all of this with you guys. And chapter 10 becomes a really interesting chapter in that light. Because the author is now going to start to walk back and summarize everything he's been saying and start to move us to the point of saying, now what do we do? with all of this. So in chapter 10, he's going to kind of summarize everything he's been saying the past couple of weeks and just showing us that Jesus is greater than the law, right? That what the Old Testament law was set up to do, yes, in all these little pieces, Jesus was better, Jesus was better, Jesus was greater, but really, Jesus is it. And this is kind of the point where the author gets to in Hebrews saying, look, Jesus is it. And the, the summary that the author is going to walk us through is just, and again, I feel like on some of these things I, I say it and you guys go, yeah, we've, we've probably heard that before. That, that makes sense. But the author says, you know, now, now more than ever, we need to be reminded of this. We need to be convinced of this. Because he's, rem he's writing to a, a early persecuted church. Then that context just comes in so key for us. He says, when you get pressed... When you get bent out of shape, when things around you don't look like what you're hoping it will, we need to be reminded of this. We need to hear this message again. So the author of Hebrews is going to show us something really important that we need to recall, especially when we feel like we're facing hardship, church. That God established his reconciliation through his person, not through his law. There's a difference between the two the author is going to show us. That God makes us right with him through his person, Christ, not his law. Because it's his person, Christ, who can actually reconcile our brokenness. So we're going to read Hebrews chapter 10 today. And I think we're going to actually be able to cover the whole thing. So let's dive in. We've got chapter 10 beginning in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come... Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. 
Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, and these are all offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at a service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are also being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness for us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. For where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But also recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. 
but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. God, we are grateful this morning. Just how you have been showing us each week how your son fulfills all these promises, all these pictures of things to come, all these glimpses, God, of what you are after in the Old Testament. Father, we're grateful for the year that we got to spend together in Exodus, like just looking for all these pictures so that when we come to places like here in Hebrews, God, we're getting to see all these pieces coming together in Christ. Lord, we confess that, you know, sometimes we, just like yesterday, we can look at a great work of art, all the pieces coming together in a beautiful picture, and we can feel moved in that moment, Lord, and then we can immediately leave and forget everything that we just saw. Father, as we, as we see your author in Hebrews putting these pieces together for their audience, Lord, may we not just look at it and say, wow, that was cool then. Father, move in our hearts, stir in our spirits so that we would see how do we leave here changed by who you are, Lord. In your holy name we pray, amen. So guys, the author of Hebrews is making a summary statement of what they've been talking about, but it's a, it's a big deal, right? He's talking to an audience that grew up under the law, right? This, this church of people who used to be of the Jewish faith. So it's a big deal for them that he's, he's saying not only is Jesus just greater than all these pieces of the law, Jesus is greater than the law, period. And he, he shows his audience how God established his reconciliation through his person, not through his law. That's going to be a big, big deal, for the church. But he walks through some of the arguments he's made earlier in the book. If you look at verse 1, it says that the author reminds the audience how the law is just a shadow of the good things to come, right? We saw that in chapter 8, where the author wrote how the Old Testament priests serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Verse 1 also tells us that the law can never make perfect those who draw near, right? So this is literally what we saw last week in chapter 9. We were told the law could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Remember we were saying how that's a very oddly, maybe an awkward phrase to say in English. It just means it, it could forgive, but it could not transform. So the author says the same thing here in chapter 10. In verse 3, we're told it, it kept kind of reminding everybody of their sin. Right? Every time they had to go to the temple, they were reminded of what they had done wrong to deserve needing a, a forgiveness in the first place. This kind of connects all the way back to chapters 3 and 4, right? where the author says, like, make every effort to enter into the rest that God gives us in Christ. Because if we're constantly being reminded of how we've fallen short, then it's really hard for us to actually want to change. I mean, some of you guys have seen that in your personal lives. Just, you know, if, if you're going to keep reminding me of every single time I've made a mistake, it doesn't really motivate me to live at peace. It doesn't motivate me to actually change. We're also told in, in verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sacrifices or to take away sins. You know, this idea, 
they needed a new sacrifice, right? What they had under the law was not going to cut it. And that was chapter 5 through chapter 7, Jesus being this new priest, this new sacrifice in the line of Melchizedek. I mean, all this Old Testament language, the author is saying, like, remember, we've walked through this. Right? Like, I've been, I've been showing this to you guys in the earlier parts of my letter. And he kind of sums this up by quoting Jesus quoting an Old Testament passage in verses 5 through 7. Jesus is quoting Psalm 40 when he says, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, right? So why is the author making all of this? He says, let me, let me point you to Jesus and what Jesus himself says about this. Jesus shows up and says, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, declaring God what you're really after in your people is not this submission to a godly moral law that you set up in the Old Testament, right? That, that was not going to be the thing that actually makes reconciliation, forgiveness, transformation that holds this together. Something else, something else you're after, God, right after it. Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. That Greek phrase there. Soma de Catardizo, it's a literal, physical body that God has perfected. God's completed. He's refined. Right? So Jesus says, look, God, I know you sent me to show everybody that when you're making us right with you, you're not doing that under a system, under a law. You're doing that through a person. And he reiterates this in verse 6. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure, right? It's, it's not of you, God, for me to be able to sit back and say, this is what's right, this is what's wrong, let's just get everybody together to follow this. God says, this is not what I'm asking you to spend your time and energy establishing. And Jesus says, here, I have come to do your will, O God, right? God, you're not putting a new law in place, you're sending me. God's reconciliation is now coming not through a law, but through a person. And I just keep thinking how wild this would have sounded for the early church, right? Because they're coming out of a background where all they know is following a law. So it would make sense to them. If God's going to send Jesus, if he's going to fulfill all the old pieces of the law, he's going to make us all right with him, and then what, God? Right, like then what is Jesus going to do? And it would make sense to them to say, oh, he's just going to put a new law in place. It's, it's a better one, and it's a God-glorifying one, and, and it's something that you know, will help us very easily see how to live and how not to live, kind of like what we used to have. But the author, he quotes Jesus as saying, that's not really what I'm after. Because the way that I'm making you right with me, children of God, is not just by putting a new law in place. It's by bringing a new self to take up. And the author gives us this commentary. He, I mean, I love when scripture provides its own commentary. But the author tells us this right after quoting Jesus. Right after quoting Jesus in verses 5 through 7, he immediately in verse 8 starts to say, look, this is what Jesus was pointing to. Uh, that God was going to bring his reconciliation through a person, not through a law. It says in verses 8 and 9 that Jesus came to do away with the first in order to establish the second. God's moving out from that system. We're not going back to that. 
verse 10 through 14, because this is what God's after, that's why it was Christ's sacrifice and not the sacrifice of the law that makes us holy, verse 10. We're told that all the sacrifices of, of works or of service or of morals, just you know, changing how we think and believe about things, all these sacrifices under the Old Testament law. We're told in verse 11, they could never take away sins. It is only Christ's sacrifice, verse 14, that has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Then the author even brings the Holy Spirit into it. Verses 15 through 18, he says, look, the Holy Spirit also was trying to prompt you guys to say this is the case. That what God is after is not a new law, but a new self. He quotes how the Holy Spirit gave a vision to the prophet Jeremiah. He's referencing chapter 31 there, where he says, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And the author says, now, why might that be a big deal? Because verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Once God shows up and says, what makes you right with me is not just following a new or even a godly version or a moral version, not just a new law. What, what makes you right with me is my son, myself, Christ. Once we get this, we finally have the Greek word aphesis. We have freedom. We have deliverance. We have healing. We have, I love it, it even means remission in some places, right? That you, you had a, a literal cancer in your body that has now been removed and you're in a new state. We have liberty. The author says, look, guys, this is what I've been trying to tell you for nine chapters worth of, of material here. Why did I keep trying to show you that Jesus was greater than all the pieces of the law? Because when God established the way for us to be made right with him, what his reconciliation would look like, he says it's through his person, not his law. And immediately, you know, I, I, I think there's just, there's moments where we, we hear that and you go, okay, like that, that sounds very nice, pastor. I, like, I, I can hear that and I can agree with that. But, you know, what, how does that actually speak to where, what the struggle I'm facing is? The author of Hebrews knows that. He knows that he's, or they're writing to an audience that's facing persecution. That is just on all fronts is not welcome in their world. And so he says, look, I, I know that this is a big idea. And I know that this is calling you to something other than what you're used to. So the author then in the rest of the chapter just shows, shows this is the hope we have. right? This is the hope that we cling to. Why is this worth it? He says in verses 19 through 21, because Jesus is this for us. Because God established his reconciliation through his person, through Christ. We ought to, verse 22, draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We are, verse 23, to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. We are to, verse 24, consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And when I was preparing to teach this this week, guys, there was, 
I actually started to take in my notes, you know, like, oh, look, there's three different commands. There's three different verbs. What does each one of these tell us to do? And, and the more I went back and started thinking, but to the, to the audience that this was being written to, to this, this Old Testament persecuted church, they wouldn't have heard three separate things. They would have heard the same thing being said three different ways. As some of you guys know when you're in the middle of something really hard, sometimes it takes the same thing being said two, three, four times before it really starts to sink in. So the author of Hebrews is just practicing this. He says, look, remember when you are struggling, when you are facing persecution, when your body's just facing hardship, don't go back. Do not leave Christ. Why? Because it is Christ that makes us right. That God, because he established his reconciliation through his person, not his law, it's his person that can actually provide healing, salvation, deliverance, right? The early church would have been very tempted to go back to the law. I was thinking about in the Greek mythology, they have the, the siren song, right? That, that the sailors, when they're on the boats, they hear the beautiful singing, and so they sail towards it, and then they get there, and they find out the sirens are actually monsters, something to that effect. That's, that's what my, my Greek mythology course at Tech was good for all those years ago. The law would have presented what looked like an escape route. For the early church. Because if you think about where they're at right now, they're misunderstood and kind of mistreated a lot by the Roman culture around them, right? Rome doesn't really know what to do with this group. They know of the Jews. The Romans and Jews have existed together for a long time, not always at peace. They've not always played well together, but they at least know what that group is. We have no clue what this new group over here calling themselves Christians is. So there's just a lot of misunderstanding. There's also not a lot of good, warm, fuzzy feelings between Rome and the church because the church is saying there's only one true God and we're following him. And Rome is saying we follow tens, fifties, hundreds of gods. How, what makes your God the one true one? There's not a good relationship there. But the church also didn't have a good relationship with the Jews because here, I mean, you think if you're from the Jewish faith and you're reading what the audience, uh, you know, of what the author of Hebrews is saying here, you're going, hold up, you're basically calling my whole faith system worthless? Like, you're telling me that Jesus, I, I don't need any of this stuff I was raised on because of Jesus? Like, there's a lot of animosity coming from every side that the early church would have been facing as they're hearing this. But going back to the law is kind of like that siren song of escape, right? Well, if we, just, if we just went back to the law, then the Jews wouldn't hate us so much, right? Because we'd just be doing the same thing that they used to do. They could, they could, they could live with that. Oh, if, if we just went back to the law, then the Romans would understand who we were, right? Like, they know the Jews. That's no big problem. We just look like them. So you just treat us like they did. But the author of Hebrews is begging them three different ways, says, guys, please do not get sucked into the monster. Do not go back. Do not sail that direction. He says, draw near with the true heart because in Christ we have full assurance of faith. It's in Christ our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Our bodies are washed with pure water. The author is saying, yes, the 
following the godly moral law might sound like it would get you out of persecution, but it cannot make you right with God. Church, don't sacrifice simply just having an easier life on earth where you're more understood. Don't sacrifice being right with God for that. It says, verse 23, begs the church, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Yes, following that, that godly moral law makes it a lot easier to say what's right and what's wrong for the rest of the world. And when we are facing struggle, man, don't we just want to know, God, just show me if what I'm clinging to is right. We want that. And yet the author of Hebrews says, don't sacrifice the beautiful mystery of the promise and the hope that we have in Christ for just clarity. Don't sacrifice the righteousness of God beyond our understanding for simple clarity. Verse 24, 25, it begs the church, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Yes, church, if you followed the godly moral law, you would be able to easily define who is in and who is out of the camp, right? That would make life so much easier, especially if you're facing suffering, right? Like you got to know who you can trust. Like John was saying, you want to know who you're in the foxhole with. The, the appeal of the law is to say we can set our boundaries and say this is who is in the camp. This is not who's in the camp. And the author says, don't mistake that for the unity in Christ. Don't divide and, and establish a community just of, of like-minded and people that just think exactly like we do and think, oh, then this must be the unity in Christ that we have. Because it's, you know, don't neglect to meet together. To call people out of the camp and say, good, be gone. And then the author knows. The author knows as he's saying this, he's speaking against the very tension we feel when we're suffering. And so the author says, guys, remember. Remember how you have seen God's reconciliation at work in Christ. Verse 26 and 27, in Christ we've received the knowledge of the truth. Right? He says, look, you have what you need. You have what you are looking for in Jesus. Don't, don't leave that. In fact, he paints a picture in verses 28 through 31 that if we were to leave that, we would be asking something other than Christ to stand between us and God. We would be holding up some other standard, a way of saying, okay, God, instead of looking at Christ and all of who he is and what he's done and giving me righteousness because of that, God, I'm going to hold this other thing up here. Except the author has just spent five or six chapters saying the law can't save, right? Well, why are you putting something else above you that cannot save you when you have Jesus who can and who does and who is and will always save? The author reflects, hey, guys, remember when you were clinging to that, it changed the way that you saw persecution and hardship. He says in verses 32 through 34, remember when you used to endure hardship with joy? Remember when it didn't matter if people were just blatantly taking your possessions? Remember it didn't matter if people were mistreating you or if people misunderstood you? It didn't matter because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The author says, look at somewhere along the way. 
in the midst of your suffering, you just decided to say, I'm done. I'm done with the hardship. I'm done with the tension. I am digging in my heels. I am painting the picture. This is the boundary here. This is the boundary here. And I am sticking to this. And the author says, remember the joy that you used to show others when you were in hard times. When you were in persecution. Remember when it didn't even matter how greatly you were misunderstood. Because you knew that what you had in Jesus was better. The author says, cling to that. What you need, verse 36, you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And what is promised, verses 37, 38. God promises he is coming back for those who persevere in his image. And that he takes pleasure in those who persevere in his image. He says, don't go back to the law. That what you think you may find in just preserving and following a godly moral law, it cannot do for you what Jesus has already done. It cannot lead you into the life that God has in Christ. He ends with this encouragement, 39. And I love this. It's almost like he's looking at his, his team and he's saying, look, remember who you are, guys. You are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. You're not of those who are who have slipped back into the law and have said, you know what, Jesus was great for a time, but this thing over here provides me escape, provides me clarity. I'm just going to go back to that. He says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He says, we have true reconciliation because we have stayed with Christ. We've not left that. For something else. And the, the rest of the book then goes on to kind of show us what that's going to look like. Right? We're going to spend a couple weeks going over chapters 11 and 12 and 13. Some of which you guys are, are more familiar with. Where the author shows and says, look, this, this is what this looks like. If it is true that God brought his reconciliation to us, not in a law, but in a person... He's going to now take some time to show his audience, okay, guys, then this is what we do. And this is what life looks like. I don't have time to read you guys three more chapters of Hebrews today and try to give you a summary. But I am going to read you one other place in Scripture that's sharing the same thing. Because this idea of, of God's reconciliation coming through a person, not the law, the need to endure, and what that looks like, Hebrews is not the only place that picks up on this. Paul writes about this to the church at Thessalonica in his letter, 1 Thessalonians. So I'm going to read chapter 2. We're going to pause a couple different places throughout. But listen, as we read 1 Thessalonians 2, a lot of the same refrain from what we just saw in Hebrews is coming up again. So Paul, as he's writing to this, the church in Thessalonica, he says in chapter 2, verse 1, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So right off the bat, he says, you guys remember, you've seen in us, right, we came out of extreme suffering in Philippi. 
right? Just as the author of Hebrews is saying, look, you know what it's like to live in hard times. Paul says, okay, church in Thessalonica, you guys just saw us. You just saw us. What did we look like? The very first thing he says in verse 2, we still had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict, right? He says to endure in God's reconciliation means we're still sharing the gospel, right? We're not necessarily talking about how bad everything is or how horrible stuff around us is getting. We're still sharing the gospel. We're still saying, okay, whatever the rest of the things around us look like, here's who Jesus is. Here's what God has done in Christ. He says, you know, verses 3 through 6, what else? What else does our endurance look like? For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or for others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Enduring in God's reconciliation, it, it didn't just shape what Paul did, it changed who he was. It changed the, the operating system that Paul had running in the background. Right? Paul says, I, I'm leading people into life with Christ, not the law. Despite how appealing that would have been, verse 4, it would have led to flattery, greed, and authority, verses 5 through 6. And it just kind of, I paused this week, because I, I know in conversations with some of you, you've come, several of you have come out of some very strict, in your words, legalistic backgrounds when it comes to faith. And I started thinking, it's, it's not an accident that Paul says, when we are looking through God's reconciliation under the law, there's a lot of flattery. That takes place, right? There's a lot of praising the good and condemning the bad. There's a lot of greed that takes place. Maybe more so under the table, but we, we have the things that we know are good that we just want at all costs. We get greedy. And there's also power struggles in place. I just think it's, it's interesting. Some of you guys in sharing your stories with me, you've seen that to be very true in some circles of your faith. And Paul calls it out right here, says, look, that's not what reconciliation in Christ looks like. That is what it looks like if you're pursuing it through a law, but not in Christ. Paul continues, verses seven. So here's Paul giving more examples of what does it look like to endure in God's reconciliation. He says, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Just go pause right there. Because we always, I shouldn't say we always. My growing up, we grew up, Paul was the man, right? Paul was the, the apostle that just boldly went around slinging truth nuggets at people. He was the one that was on the missionary forefront. Like Paul, we, we consider this like stalwart, like this beast. This big guy, Paul. And yet Paul says, here's how... My attitude, here's how I was toward you. I was like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. That's not the language that you typically use when you're describing what you're looking for in the leader of an organization to go conquer new things. That you're looking for a nursing mother taking care of her children. Yet Paul says, this is the attitude that I had because 
I'm living out reconciliation under the person of Christ, not the law of God. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, not only the truth, not only the message, but also our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. That's how deeply he cares about the people he's talking to. You've become dear. I'm affectionately desiring you. Verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. While we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, and here's another family piece, for a, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Same piece of the heart he has for his audience. Then verses 13 through 20, he does the same thing that the author of Hebrews does. He reminds the audience of how he has seen them live out the example in the past and say, guys, don't, don't stray from this. He says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. That, that last piece hit me, church. That if we understood how what makes us right with God does not come under a law but comes under a person. It changes us so much that the way we view other people, we could get to the point where we're saying, well, are you not our glory? Are you not our joy? Like, don't, don't I just love what God is doing in you so much that like when people ask me, man, what makes it worth it to follow Christ? You'd point at a person and say them. Like, how beautiful is this picture of ministry and faith that Paul is presenting to his audience saying, you guys used to do that, don't leave this. The big three things that Paul pulls out as he's talking to his church, he says, look, we, we share the gospel above all. Right? If God makes us right through Christ, not through his law, then in every interaction we have with our culture, with our families, we're not trying to just set up another godly law. We are after the gospel, who Christ is and what he has done in us. It says we share the gospel above all. It says our motives are transformed. Not talking about God changing other people as if they're the problem, but God changing us. 
which leads to the last one, that we view others with love and care, right? It is, it is hard to have a, a hatred or a rough spot in your heart towards someone if you're going to call them your glory and your joy. And yet that is where Paul is with his audience. So guys, as we wrap up this morning, the three questions I have for us, based off of what Paul says, enduring in God's reconciliation under his person, not his law, what does this look like? Three questions. The first one is just simply, where am I fighting to be heard? Because when we are living out a law mentality, right, we got to make sure our, our law is heard. We got to make sure our voice is heard amongst all the other voices and all the other laws that are going on. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we end up working harder to make our voice heard than in letting God change our hearts. And the apostle Paul shows up and says to this church that he says, look, look, you guys saw the persecution and the suffering I went through. You guys knew that what was taking place in Philippi wasn't right. Did I ever complain to you about how bad it was? Or did you just see what was truly in my heart? Did I not show you how to strive to make sure I want to reflect God and who you are, no matter what is taking place around me? Where am I fighting to be heard instead of asking God to change my heart? Second question, what am I hoping to gain in helping others? Hopefully the answer here is I'm, I'm really not looking for anything when I'm helping others. But there are moments, there are times where we serve out of a desire to see what we can get out of it. Or at bare minimum, we, we don't serve when we don't see what we can get out of something. Right? Paul, Paul is showing his audience, he says, look, your, your motives are being changed when we're following Christ. We're not driven as the law would have us say, well, if I do this thing, I receive this outcome. Paul says, we've all gotten every outcome we need in Jesus, right? So where service is not based off of what we can get out of a situation. So maybe the Holy Spirit needs to change a heart issue somewhere in there this week. What am I hoping to gain when I help others? And the last question, where am I focused on fixing a problem instead of caring for a person? I get a lot of emails as a pastor asking for my support or for our church's engagement and different things all over the world, okay? And it is, it is, well, it's not hilarious. It's interesting because I can almost break down all of those emails into two categories, right? They either tend to be help us reach these people and help us fix this problem. And I'll tell you, of those two groups of emails, I delete one of those categories immediately. Because when we are starting to view people and issues as problems that need fixing. What Paul and what the author of Hebrews has shown us is it makes giving, extending the care or the grace or the love of God to someone a secondary motive. It, it makes change a prerequisite for somebody receiving this. And just like we said last week, man, praise God that that is not how he deals with us. Praise God, God did not come to us and say, well, here's my standard. Hit this mark before I'm going to show up and work with you. Check all of these boxes off perfectly. 
before you can represent me, before you can live with me. Praise God. That is not how he is with us. In our, in our close friendships and, and with our spouses, praise God, that's how they aren't with us either. Right? Praise God that we have learned to love people very well, very deeply, not saying I need you to fix all of these things before you're worthy and deserving of my love and my grace. Guys, we, this is not the example. We know this to be true. The author of Hebrews and Paul here both say, stick with this. Guys, I, I want to end too with the little encouragement bit that Paul and the author of Hebrews do. In writing this this week, I thought of many of you guys because I have seen this attitude really in the DNA of this church more than I have in other places. And I'm not trying to say that because I'm your pastor and I'm trying to give you a big head. I say that because I love that about you guys and I pray that we would continue in it. Because I have watched over the past 18 months, so many of you are very generous with your homes and your lives. To say, look, if, if there are people that want to be made right with God, then I'm going to go work with them. But equally important, you can't have that attitude with also having a heart of saying, man, I really so badly want to be right with God. I'm willing to ask for help. I'm willing to go to someone. I'm willing to say, man, I, I actually might struggle with this and might need this, okay? That is, that is the heart that the author of Hebrews is trying to describe. That's the heart that Paul is saying we have when we see God's reconciliation comes through his person, his Christ, not just his law. So I, as we, we close with this, guys, man, continue with this. Because that is a special thing. And that is one of many things we pray God continues to grow here at our church. So let's, let's pray together as we close today. We say, God, thou hast taught me that Christ has all fullness and so all plenitude of the Spirit. That all fullness I lack in myself is in him and for his people, not just for himself alone. Thou hast taught me that Christ has perfect knowledge, perfect grace, perfect righteousness to make me see, to make me righteous, to give me fullness. Thou hast taught me that it is my duty out of a sense of emptiness to go to Christ, to possess him, to enjoy his fullness as mine, as if I had it in myself, because it is for me in him. And when I do this, God, I am full of your spirit as a fish that has got out from the shore to the deep sea and has all the fullness of waters to move in. When faith fills me, then I am full. This is the way to be filled with the spirit. Like Stephen, first faith, then fullness. For this way makes me most empty and so most fit for the spirit to fill. Thou hast taught me that the finding of this treasure of all grace in the field of Christ begets his strength, begets his glory, begets his joy, and renders all his graces alive. Help me to delight more in what I receive from Christ, more in that fullness which is in him, the fountain of all his glory. Father, let me not think to receive the spirit from him as just a thing apart from finding it, drinking it, being filled with it. To this end, O God, do thou establish me in Christ. Settle me and give me a being there. Assure me with certainty that all of this is really mine. For this alone will fill my heart with joy and peace, Father God.